So what would need to happen in your life that would make you willing to go to one AA meeting every single day? Would you need to lose your job, your home, your spouse, your children? Exactly how much wreckage would you need to accrue before becoming convinced that your addiction was completely out of your control? Today, we talk with Mike, who will discuss his own journey of recovery, from his initial encounter with opiates to his slow but steady switch to alcohol abuse. Most importantly, Mike will discuss his ambivalence about ambivalence. Together, we will define what this means and assess the level of Mike's commitment to total abstinence from drugs and alcohol, as well as the fuzzy edges where he just isn't exactly sure yet. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. So, who are you? My name is Mike. Hi, world, Mike, Mike, world. What brings you in today? Why are you sitting on my couch? Well, I am a current patient of yours, and uh, here I am. Here we are. And what are we talking about? No one knows. Doesn't matter. We'll get into it. So how did we meet? So we met at a facility called Foundations. Um, a few years ago, I had broken my arm, um, had some major surgery on my elbow, and fell into a pit of despair with some addiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, went to inpatient rehab, got out of that, and found- what, um, were you, what were you addicted to? I was prescribed a multitude of things, but- primarily Oxycontin. So your drug dealer was Walgreens. Um, yeah, a, quite a convenient one. Mm-hmm, they're the best. They even call you and remind you. Yeah. I knew a woman that would say, oh, my dealer called today, but she was referring to Walgreens. <laughs> they even have an app for it. <laughs> you have an app for it? They'll bring you your drugs to your front door? You know, I wasn't that lazy, but I, I presume that is a viable method of yeah. delivery. No, no, it works. It works. Um, it's almost as good as the, using the dark net. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So I was going to outpatient therapy. You were selected as my therapist for group therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I I graduated from that, I decided to go seek out therapy on my own. And so kind of took the insurance route of finding a therapist, which actually was about a six-month waste of time, quite frankly. Yes, because you discovered that insurance in America is really bad. <laughs> yeah. And ironically enough, I work in healthcare. So yeah. Um, yeah, I have firsthand knowledge that the therapists, not all therapists are cut from the same cloth. No. And also what happens is that a lot of these therapists are horribly overworked. When you work under the aegis of an insurance company, you um, have tons of paperwork to do. And it's just a constant struggle. It's a constant uphill, drudgerous, horrible thing. And so a lot of therapists, um, I don't want to say the best therapists, but I think that Therapists who do well would be remiss to be part of an insurance company because it's 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 like getting paid twenty dollars an hour at the end of the day. It's just it's pennies. At any rate, that's another topic. So then, what happened? So I finally decided that that was not the right trajectory for me. I wasn't growing, um, and so I reached out to you. I had your card, and then yeah. And for those of you listening at home, an IOP is like inpatient rehab, but you can go home at night. <laughs> yeah. You basically show up, you do groups, you have an individual therapist uh, who you see weekly, kind of manage, it's like a case management slash short term therapy, get you involved in AA and NA or whatever you need to do. And that was what I was doing with you. Yeah. At the time, my current boss was like, no, you can't see patients that are at our facility in your private practice. 
And then uh, at some point, I just decided to stop listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what changed. I think we changed bosses, and my new boss was like, "Eh, no big deal." You know, you have to break the rules sometimes. So, well, breaking the rules also helped you. So that's whatever. It's what, is what it is. And so you were started working with me, and at that time, you were not doing opiates, right? You had stayed clean from yeah, opiates. I had stayed clean from opiates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the point was, is that what was the my my biggest the the thing I warned you about early, early, early on, and, and even when you were at, still at uh, our IOP, what was what did I tell you that was very key about uh, cross addiction? Um, refresh my memory. Well, I said that sometimes when you're addicted to drug A and you stop doing that drug, you switch to drug B, mm. and you said, "Oh no, 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 that'll never happen to me. I'll be fine." And I said, okay. I said, do you drink? And you said, well, I won't drink while I'm at the IOP. And I said, okay. And then you started drinking and you're like, it's fine. I don't drink that much. And I was like, okay, but just keep an eye on it because that shit will get you. Because over the years, I see people switch substances constantly. I'm convinced that there's some kind of underlying need that drugs and alcohol are serving. A, a nice concrete example would be a guy, I remember he, he went to rehab when I was working in inpatient and he left, graduated, did great. And then he showed back up a good nine months later in a taxi with all of his bags and he was roaring drunk and he looked like he'd gained about 20 pounds in muscle. And I was like, what happened, man? He's like, I got into CrossFit and CrossFit became his new substance. But the problem is, is he tore his rotator cuff in CrossFit. And what do you do when you don't have your CrossFit substance? You turn to alcohol. Right. So CrossFit became his new substance. That is not to say that just because you do something a lot and love it, that means you're addicted. Uh, the definition of addiction is basically boils down to doing something that you really like, even though it's destroying your life and you keep doing it with full knowledge that it's destroying your life. That's addiction in a nutshell. So I said, Mike, maybe you shouldn't drink. And you said, I don't know. I said, okay, well, at least it's not opiates, right? And so we kind of went back and forth a bit. And my whole thing is to kind of do wait and see with patients mm -hmm. because it's not my business to tell you how to live your life. I mean, it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. And so what happened then? Well, what I remember quite vividly is you made the recommendation for me to give myself a six-month window of abstaining from everything. Mm -hmm. And I remember that inflection point. And I remember that because I've never really had a male figure that I respected tell me, hey, do this for six months mm -hmm. and see if you can hit that goal. Right. And so, you know, I heeded your advice and I didn't drink for six months or do anything. And life was good, wasn't and, it? Yeah, life was good. It was interesting because therapy sessions evolved into, oh, I'm not coming to my therapist because my life is in shambles. Mm -hmm. I can actually talk about things that are interesting, things that are notable and worth fostering and cultivating. And uh, so things were going well. And then what started to happen? Things were going well. And then at that six month mark, I was going to go on a trip with my father to Korea. Um, my dad was a Korean war vet mm -hmm. and um, we were going to travel together as part of this program where the Korean government partially subsidizes veterans and their families Oh, cool! to go to Seoul and do like a historical tour of the city, the war, and just kind of their path of growth post-war, which was really cool. Um, at that point, I, I met up, I have some friends in Seoul and that's, you know, the point where I just started to drink again, mm -hmm. you know, very gradually. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was at that six month mark where I- Okay. 
And so the reason we're meeting today is the subject of ambivalence is is important because it's about folks who seem to have a substance abuse issue. And that substance abuse, we mean really any substance. It can be food, it can be sex, it can be gambling, it can be whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? And they're not really convinced that they have a problem. They're like 70% convinced mm -hmm. or sometimes 40%. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of go back and forth. They're not really sure. Another One of the great definitions of ambivalence comes out of Europe, actually, where when people have a relapse, they call it a convincer, right? Yeah, I had a convincer. Oh, you had a convincer. How did that go? You know, Because there's this thing that they think they can handle themselves. They think they can do it, and they can't. Um, I'm not saying that no one can, but in my professional experience, I I've never met someone who was really addicted to stuff and was able to just manage it. I've, I've never seen it. I've, I've heard rumors. For instance, the reason they use the word convincer is because it's sort of a, a tacit understanding that nobody's really 100% convinced in a way, though perhaps they are. But it, that's why they have the, the idea in the AA, they have the idea of surrender. And the idea of surrender really comes down to like, okay, I, I, I'm not in charge of this thing. I give up control. This is clearly a problem. And that's a hard pill to swallow because it's such an ego blow. Mm -hmm. Everyone likes to drink. It's fun to drink. You know, it's fun to go out with friends and have a drink and do tons of cocaine and go nuts in Vegas for a weekend and spend, you know, $50,000. And anyway, people like to have a good time. So tell me, since since you started drinking, some of the the events that happened that kind of shook you a little bit. Um, I think a lot of it tied into, well, I think holistically, you know, everything ties in together, whether it's stressors from work, relationships, whether they be with yeah, on the dating side of things or relationships from through family members, mm -hmm. holidays, just, you know, those things that can continue to like snowball. But I think specifically for me, what happened is once COVID hit, you know, everyone's life effectively got flipped upside down. I remember I was in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was ready to leave to go visit a fairly large client. And then I get an email like, a few hours before while lunch is being delivered to this office mm -hmm. for me to do a presentation saying mm -hmm. that they're shutting their doors across the country. And mm -hmm. so went back to the hotel, packed up my stuff, um, went to the airport, had a couple of glasses of wine. And, you know, as news and information started flowing in and the realization of, you know, my work, which requires me to be gregarious and meet people face to face and develop relationships, my work world got flipped upside down. I started thinking, wow, am I going to have a job for very much longer? My roommate had moved out because he took COVID to like a whole nother level in terms of how much it affected him. Mm -hmm. And so I was living in isolation and then just trying to adhere to the rules that were imposed by the city mm -hmm. with respect to social distancing. Mm -hmm. And as a social person, that was really hard. So long story short, I would say that in the early stages of COVID, my best friend became alcohol. Yeah. Tell us about how much you were drinking and what that looked like. Um, I think it would just depend on the day of the week, what stressors were there. You know, without getting into the detail, like what inevitably just happened is like the line was absolutely blurred between drinking for fun and like happy hour with coworkers where you're still trying to keep this community via Zoom and like you have a long day and like, you know, your coworkers on in the Midwest or on the East Coast invite you to happy hour or, you know, you're trying to stay in touch with your other friends who are socially dis distancing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
the line was blurred. It was like drinking out of boredom, drinking out of stress, drinking because the monotony of every single day was just the absolute same. How much were you drinking? Um, I was drinking like a bottle of wine a day or two bottles of wine a day. It okay. depends. Yeah. I remember once you called me in the morning yeah. and you were really, really drunk. You had just woken up and were, were just slinging wine like 9 a.m. Yeah, it's a, there were definitely some super, super dark moments. And during that time, you were not entirely sure that you had a problem. Is that correct? Oh, no, I was pretty aware. You're aware. Yeah. But then you kind of move out of it. So you'll stop drinking for a while. You'll feel really good. This is the cycle that I see a lot of patients go yeah. through. I said they stop drinking. They feel great. Things are going awesome. And they just kind of start to go, hmm, maybe I'm not, you know. So how much, how convinced are you now that you're an alcoholic or that you're an addict? Oh, 100, like I'm completely, absolutely convinced. Oh, you're completely convinced? Yeah. Okay. But that's, that's totally separate from ambivalence. Well, what's the ambivalence piece? Well, I think, you know, in our sessions, a lot of talk becomes about like life and its paradoxes, right? Mm -hmm. Like. I think the paradox of ambivalence is that like no matter how ingrained it is that I am an alcoholic and that you know drinking will lead me astray and put me into paths that I just don't want to be down again mm -hmm. um, there's just always those temptations those little nuggets in the back of your head that will be forever present you want to talk about those nuggets um sure so yeah I, I think in large part i think a lot of it has to do with like the circles that you surround yourself with mm -hmm. but you know for me the way that i see it is like if i'm going to want to live a life alcohol free like i should be able to at some point you know it's probably not recommended now but mm -hmm. i'm already doing it like hang out with my friends who choose to drink or choose to party mm -hmm. and just know that that not what I'm going to do. Like, uh -huh. I'm going to drink a LaCroix. Or LaCroix. I'm convinced that the mar marketing on LaCroix is to alcoholics. I mean, it just, if you look at the LaCroix cans, they just look, there's something about them. Them and the energy drinks, there's like something about them that says, like, I don't know, like, we're the prize. Like, come get yeah. us. You know, we're not a beer, but we're all, we're close enough or something. I don't know what it is about those cans. It's funny. I went to a really, like, super organic grocery store yesterday just mm -hmm. to, pick up some stuff and there was a white claw candle white claw candle a white uh, yeah it's just an empty can of white claw and they made a candle out of it oh a candle yeah oh, i thought it said a handle like a like a, a handle of vodka but it was white claw <laughs> that'd be gross yeah i can't stand white claw i think it's disgusting um why the name white claw i think of bear claw i think of pastry but it's not pastry so where are you now like in your are you are you committed to never drink for the rest of your life yeah 100 percent. yeah wasn't very confident yeah well i mean i was trying to put some thought into this before i mean so i've been put in some i've put myself in precarious i wouldn't say precarious situations but you know a few weeks ago i was in miami visiting friends mm -hmm. i decided impromptu to go to mexico from miami and work from mexico for a few weeks mm -hmm. both of those places historically i've drank and, um, you know, I didn't, mm -hmm. but that temptation was there. But, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm going to be realistic and put myself into a scenario of like real life, you know, if I meet 
a life partner mm -hmm. and um you know she drinks or you know we get married or you know something and there's like a celebratory event those little things yeah you know at this point i want to say that i would say no and i would have that full support but mm -hmm. um you know i think i'd be lying if i said that i wouldn't you know it's so i think that's where the ambivalence comes in like i want to say yes that i'll never drink uh, again that i'll never drink again I, and i don't want to drink again yeah that's different and that's that's good i'm glad we're talking about this so there's, there's a piece of you that's like ah, if you meet people that are really that have been in the program for years and like i think it was um augustine burroughs the writer who wrote running with scissors and he said that nobody gets sober until they want sobriety more than their drug of choice like i was talking to another patient today who was having problems with weight loss and i said look you're not going to lose weight until you want health more than you want the food on your plate it's just not going to happen a lot of times what happens is that people who don't lose enough don't become fully convinced it's actually not that common to meet people in recovery who are, are who you can kind of feel are 100 i'm never touching drugs and alcohol again for as long as i live it's rare and usually those people are the ones who've flown very close to the sun uh, they've lost jobs they've uh, sometimes died and come back to life like we're resuscitated they've crashed cars been in jail they've been in prison they've lost jobs they've you know taken off all their clothes and you know run through downtown and i mean all sorts of stuff you know you can you name it and they it scares them to their core because they yeah. lo they've lost so much they've lost their families i heard a story about a guy who um, was sober for 15 years i never met this guy but i just heard the story and he saw a baggie of cocaine on the street in the marina somewhere and within i think 48 hours he'd lost his girlfriend his job and his house and it was just like he it just his life exploded wow. so there's there are those in in recovery who i would who would say yeah if i get married to a woman and and she drinks i'm still never drink. it's a dichotomous issue yeah. they would never even know but you still have that fuzzy edge which is what i'm interested in today yeah let's get into that a little bit yeah so i again i think it, it's an interesting paradox right like i've definitely come close to losing things but luckily i've you've skirted by you've, yeah. you've done okay yeah i've done okay and to give you some context i've had friends that have od'd in the past few months i've mm -hmm. had friends that have died i've had friends of friends that mm -hmm. have died i haven't had those moments mm -hmm. i haven't had those things that would be so ingrained in my psyche mm -hmm. to really stick it in what's interesting is i it, it, we're so quick to forget because i do remember the last day that i stopped drinking it was when i was in dallas visiting my sister yeah it was just like after a week or a week of really stressful work i hadn't drank for a couple of weeks while i was there and then i just started drinking through the weekend and then it just like was super dark yeah it's really hard to channel that sentiment again into the future um, or just be like hey mike remember that day back in may where you were yeah. feeling like shit and yeah. you weren't functioning very well and mm -hmm. it's hard to really channel that visceralness of it because when you lose a lot it becomes really visceral all the time the specter of your wreckage is everywhere around you right so it's like well should i have lost more or like i'm definitely the type of person that is always looking for solutions so this is the thing everybody has their they want to call everybody has their bottom Mm -hmm. my sense is that your bottom it seemed to be during covid when you called me up and you were just drunk you were worried about your job 
and you were worried about your friends, you were just kind of at your wits end. I think what helps crystallize it for me is I look at it from a timing perspective and can call it what you will. The notion of divine intervention may turn off some people, but the series of events that led up to me reconnecting with you was that moment in time when I was over at my sister's. Mm -hmm. And then you calling me after us not having talked for a couple of months, mm -hmm. you connecting me with my now sponsor. And then three days later after that, two of my friends overdosed in LA. One of them made it and one of them passed oh, away. I'm sorry to hear that. And you know, within that uh, th the span of that week, there were just so many signs that said, "Get your shit together." Like, yeah. Yet here you are, like, well, if I get married and she's wants to drink, and I'll be at my wedding. I remember there was a I heard a story about a woman who I don't know who she was, but she wanted to drink non-alcoholic champagne at her wedding, <laughs> and she thought that when she could toast, that she would toast with non-alcoholic champagne. It's like, why would your brain even go in that direction? And so that was her ambivalence. I understand. In other words, logically, it makes sense. I understand why you'd want to do that. You want to be, you want to participate, but why the hell can't you do it with like apple cider? Why does it have to be non-alcoholic champagne? Why the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it would taste terrible too. Ugh, I know, right? Apple I love that apple cider stuff. Yeah, it's that's good. Good, man. Martinelli's. I could drink that. But ooh, so yummy. I wonder if they have hard Martinelli's. No. Anyway, that's a that's a crime. Can you talk? I'm just I'm trying to drill a little bit on this because it's really I think this is really valuable for people because the the reason that I called you in today is that it's these little sort of fuzzy edges where you're not really hundred percent where the relapse happens. It's, I see it almost as like a, an infection of consciousness. That there's still this bug in your psyche that says, you know, hey, you can do this, you know, and maybe, and maybe I'm not really sure what happens is that if left unchecked, it can grow. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I'm a huge fan of AA is because you go there and you can verbalize your cravings, you can verbalize your ambivalence, you can verbalize these things and it kind of, it gets it out, Yeah, you know, and it works it and it, um, it sort of processes it, I guess. Yeah. Well, admittedly, after getting connected with my sponsor, going to Zoom meetings, which mm -hmm is essentially all there is now. Yeah. Those just kind of like lost their luster. I don't know why. I enjoyed meeting the people there. See, that's ambivalence in my opinion. I'm going to push you a little bit here. Okay. Because if you knew that your life was in danger of ending like mm -hmm. next weekend, <laughs> you would not have any problem going to a Zoom meeting. You would just go. You would like, absolutely, I'm doing it. Yeah. But the, the fear of God is not in you. It's just not. And that's why I'm doing this podcast today because there's so many people who are in recovery mm -hmm. who ha who don't quite have that really firm, rock solid conviction. Yeah. And that's hard to do. So I don't blame you for it. I'm also speaking to the multitudes out there who are struggling with drinking or doing coke or doing opiates and they think they've got it under control mm -hmm. and they kind of do mm -hmm. for now until it kind of spins out of control. So I'm speaking to all of those folks as well. What, what do you think would need to happen for you to go to one meeting every day? And, and that's be a good question. Because mm -hmm. to your point, I mean, I do feel like I'm in sober purgatory right now. Mm -hmm. I'm almost at 90 days, which for a lot of people is a big milestone. What does that mean, 90 days? 90 days of sobriety. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest, what it would take for me to say, hey, I'm going to commit to going to this meeting at seven every morning or mm -hmm. eight o'clock every mm -hmm. evening. You know, I do hold my commitments to people in my life that are on a similar path and journey. But mm -hmm. I guess if we're going to do things by the book or your mm -hmm. recommendations by the book, 
that's not quite enough. Right? Well, it's usually not. Usually what happens is the pattern goes, people are going to meetings, you know, three to five days a week or more, maybe seven days a week. They have a sponsor. They have what's called AA commitments. They don't really, I don't know how you would do AA commitments now. I guess you could, you could still have certain roles, but it's like the person who brings the cookies or the coffee mm. or sets the chairs up or runs the meeting or whatever. Yeah. And those commitments are put in place for the ambivalence piece because if you don't feel like going to the meeting that day you will because you have a commitment yeah i'm not just saying aa i'm saying any structure in the world that holds you accountable to being clean and sober is healthy and it's weird because what has changed drastically for me in these past three months is i've had this new commitment to eating cleaner mm -hmm. you know working out more mm -hmm. so i have those commitments mm -hmm. and the only one that's holding me accountable to that is myself yeah Whereas, you know, with my sponsor, we chatted on Sunday and mm -hmm. he was mentioning that he's speaking at a meeting. So I joined that meeting. Right. And that was just enough, just enough to push me over to say, oh, hey, I'm going to join because I want to support him mm -hmm. and him telling his story. Right? right. There are four things that make up sobriety, in my opinion, structure, accountability, community and faith in the process. Mm -hmm. of recovery. If you let up on any of those things, in my opinion, you're ambivalent and you will eventually relapse. That's what I think. I know that's absolutism, but mm -hmm. it, it, I've seen it so many times mm -hmm. with so many people that I, I, I'm convinced. I just, I'm convinced. Yeah, it makes sense. And I would say I have two of the four. What, what two do you think you have? I have um, the first two. So I've got structure and what was Accountability. Accountability. But do you don't have community? Not community in the sense of sobriety. Okay, so you, you need to go do that. And then- and Faith in the process. Yeah. You know, I think spirituality and faith is definitely something that I've contended with and struggled with. And yeah. I think I'm finding those newer pathways to that, so, but it's just not as consistent. So let's go back to the question. What would have to happen for you to be convinced, completely convinced and desperate to never drink again? Well, it certainly wouldn't be me falling flat on my face and uh, relapsing. Mm -hmm. It can't, that can't be it. Like no. I, there's just no way in hell that I'm going to let that happen. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. I, th I still go back to one of the first few sessions that we had where you made that recommendation to me and I took it to heart and mm -hmm. I almost took it as like a challenge mm -hmm. that I could do it. I, I like taking things as challenges mm -hmm. and um, internalizing those and putting them in as like a part of my subset of goals. But I think right now, given the circumstances of the, our way of life, maybe that's just super fluid. You know, if I'm being super honest, I don't have the answer to that. Okay. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I think it is because I know how slippery of a slope it is. Mm -hmm. And I know, I mean, if you would have heard the conversation that I had an hour before talking to you, mm -hmm. like if something like that had happened to me, that would certainly solidify. Which conversation? I caught up with a friend. I saw this on LinkedIn of all places, mm -hmm. a post and uh, a GoFundMe for a friend whose husband had passed away. And immediately I knew that this young man had passed away because he either drank too much or did too much Coke or a mm -hmm. combination of both. We hadn't caught up in months mm -hmm. and I had reached out to her after seeing that LinkedIn post and we caught up about an hour before this and I was just like I don't need I didn't even know where to start with the conversation yeah um there's no playbook for that nope um and geez like if something like that happened to me there's like she's seeing a sponsor now yeah. she's going to AA like she's doing the right things yeah. but what know, would it be like if your sponsor overdosed and died uh I'd be devastated 
but I don't, you know, people keep dying in my life. And, uh, do they? Um, yeah, no, I wouldn't say they're like all the closest people, but you know, I've had this conversation with friends mm -hmm. and it's just like not a surprising part of life anymore. Mm -hmm. I could probably think of a handful of people that have that propensity. Yeah. It's sad, but I have to look out for myself first mm -hmm. and foremost. Yeah. Right? How, what do you think of this conversation so far? Um, it's interesting. I, I mean, we've floated around this word dozens of times mm -hmm. um you know, there were a few moments that have drawn on out some like drawn on some emotional coat strings yeah i just don't know like i i see all the like i, I don't know i look at it as like this ten thousand piece puzzle and i've got part of the edges and like some corners built but mm -hmm. i just don't know like what's the linear progression of it the notion of one day at a time like mm -hmm. that's an easy one to digest and for those of you listening at home, one day at a time is an AA uh, saying, just one day at a time, instead of trying to think like, oh, I'll never drink again. But just today I'm not drinking, today I'm not drunk, which is a paradox because they're totally committed to abstinence, but that's fine. Um, so, you know, some days when days are stressful, that is super helpful, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, when things are going fine, I think that's has the biggest chance of when a slip up could happen, right? Yeah, when you're in a good mood, when you're, you know, you like to snowboard in Japan. Mm -hmm. you know you're snowboarding in japan you're let's say you're in peak shape you're you just met the woman of your dreams everything is going awesome mm -hmm. and you guys are on the top of uh mount fuji or something <laughs> and uh she breaks out the cognac you know what are you gonna do yeah right <laughs> yeah it's tough yeah you know i hear that you know what's interesting is that i hear relapses happen in the smallest ways i heard about a guy you know he toasted at his daughter's wedding and he said i just had a very very tiny sip of champagne like he said, so small it was I could barely taste it. And you know, a couple months later, he's drunk again. Really? Yeah, tiny little thing like that. Wow, we'll do it. Heard about a woman? She she was eating like candy. She just remembers eating it, and then she went on a crazy binge for like days. You know, after that, I had another patient ask me, "Can I eat vodka sauce?" Like, I'm like, "Why do you, would you even ask me? Like, why are you even? I've never do you? I mean, I've never. I don't even know the last time I had vodka sauce on anything." And the exclusion of vodka sauce from my life is not something I would ever notice. But this MFR is like, well, I just, does it have vodka in it? It's like, why do you care? Why are you even going near that? But that's the mentality of the alcoholic. It's like yeah. everything is about whether or not you can drink or not. Everything becomes in that way really, really important. Like the alcoholic who goes to the party mm. and isn't drinking, it thinks, is convinced that everyone's looking at them and wondering why this guy isn't drinking. <laughs> See, it was the exact opposite for me this weekend. I went to a barbecue, picked up a friend. She had had a couple of glasses before and she got pretty drunk. I don't know if she got drunk because she felt anxiety around me mm -hmm. or whatnot, but there were a few comments where that were like, come on, just like have a drink or mm -hmm. like, you know, it's weird that you're not drinking. And, you know, I had to be like, look, like respectfully, can you just not keep suggesting it? Like mm -hmm. I'm having a good time. I'm having fun. Right. But my fun isn't predicated on me being drunk with you. Wow. But yeah, I think the biggest, you know, going back to what would get me to continue on a more proper trajectory, it's really like quelling a couple of things. Like I have a tendency to be a very impulsive person mm -hmm. for good or for worse, mm -hmm. oftentimes for worse. But like, you know, when I was in Miami, I had a flight back to San Francisco, but deviated and went to Mexico for two weeks to work from there. That was impulsive behavior that's, Ris that's risky yeah mexico is risky <laughs> risky as well first yeah. time i've been to mexico without drinking which oh is my goodness enjoyable you scare me and then i think it's really just like 
on top of that, tempering my anxiety. Like I'm a naturally anxietal person. Like I move around a lot. Thoughts pass through my head and I'm like doing one thing and then like I get sidetracked and then I'm end up being in this multitasking state. You know, if I look back on my drinking patterns and behavior, you know, the helpful part of having alcohol in my life was to quell that anxiety, that anxiety of a stressful day, Mm -hmm. the anxiety of being in a, a social setting where I'm surrounded by a majority of strangers, but want to socialize. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have those opportunities now, but anxiety still persists in my life. Yeah. And so I don't know if I'm anxious about being in a room full of strangers in AA. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily true because, you know, I can work a room of 50 strangers from a business standpoint and do really well. It's because you're in charge. Yeah. It's different when Uh, you're in a room full of equals. Yeah, maybe. I'm the same way. Like when I get in front of a bunch of people, I can I can work a room, but put me at a party. Yeah, I don't want to run my peers, and I become a fucking slob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a different it's a different story. What have you been writing over there? He's he's got so Mike has a journal next to him, and I'm wondering what he why he keeps glancing at it. What's in that thing? Oh, there are just like some bullet points of you now. It's like those two things that I just talked about. Okay. Um, impulsiveness and being anxietal anxietal um, new word <laughs> is, that, is that another word way of saying anxious is that is it a word anxietal yeah i've never heard it before i'm pretty okay. sure it's anxious but anxietal is kind of new it's like okay. uh, anxietal have to may have it. to edit that one out i think i might keep it in i kind of like it my my new favorite word that may not be a word is in apropos in apropos that means not appropriate right yeah. or not not this does not follow that yeah you know trying to think of words that i like we're off track but that's okay what words do i like what's your favorite word what is my favorite word my dad made up this word when i was younger called anti-disestablishment and terrorism anti-disestablishment terrorism is a word yeah, it is it is a word he didn't make it yeah, up but i always thought it was a made-up word you thought was... <laughs> i don't know what it means it means have... it means the people who are against the people who are against the people they're they're like counter protesters mm. right so like if i went to portland yeah and started like you know um saying nasty things to all the people that were destroying stuff up there mm-hmm. i would be an anti-disestablishmentarianism and i'd also be probably branded as a anyway i'm not gonna get to that yeah. anyway so um right now like right now your sobriety is very strong i mean even though you've been slipping on meetings and there's usually a progression like when people stop going to meetings and it kind of progresses and eventually they end up drinking um how do you see the trajectory of your sobriety over the next couple of years? Can you elaborate on that? Like, um, do you see yourself beefing up the amount of meetings you go to? Can you see yourself branching out and meeting people in AA and getting to know those people, going to sober barbecues? Can you see yourself dating somebody and being very firm on, no, I'm not drinking, but you can drink and that's fine. Do you see yourself continuing to bask in the benefits of being sober because once again things have been getting better since you've stopped drinking right and i'm hoping that that will eventually that's another form of convincing you don't have to just lose stuff you can also gain stuff so once you if it becomes very very obvious that like oh i'm sober and things are going really really well that can also tip the scales yeah um thanks for adding color to that yeah i do see a progression here Mm -hmm. you know you recall i i was hesitant to AA mm-hmm. because of how biblically focused how didactic AA. dogmatic yeah it's pompous it's that. arrogant god christian jesus fuck that yep yeah i was like oh that's my <laughs> rationale for getting out of having to do this that's a great reason right and those people are all bad the whole thing terrible boy was i short-sighted in ye- thinking that just a little bit but um i didn't push it 
I mean, one thing that I have thoroughly enjoyed is the fact that people in that community are so willing to give back and it's such a reciprocal yeah. relationship. All and those so, dogmatic, crazy Christians are yeah. so nice. Yeah. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> yeah. So I would like to be in a position to where I've progressed far enough to where I can actually extend myself and be there for someone that- Be a sponsor? Help. Yeah. Okay. That'd be awesome. I would love to do that. I would love to be in a community where it's not just the handful of friends that I have now that are sober. Mm -hmm. I want to maintain my relationships and friendships with my friends mm -hmm. that choose to imbibe. But yeah, I just want to one, grow for myself. I think there's a lot of things that were packed away in terms of just interpersonal growth as a result of my drinking behavior from mm -hmm. high school up until most recently so yeah. so i think one it's working on myself two it's becoming more involved in the community three mm -hmm. it's adhering to you know our regular sessions mm -hmm. um my conversations with my sponsor my friends that i'm close with mm -hmm. who you know know my story i know theirs and i'm brutally honest with just like i am with you mm -hmm. but yeah and then i think it's just getting out of this you know i don't want to make an excuse for covid but <laughs> i am there's just no substitute for having dialogue with someone that you can actually look in the eye and really feel a connection with. So those are the things that I envision. Okay. Uh, well, you're able to meet your sponsor in person. That's true. Yeah. For those of you listening at home, a sponsor is somebody who walks you through the 12 steps of AA and basically is sort of a kind of a handler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in AA. Um, what are you going to do if you relapse? I have not thought about that until now i know welcome to my show i am going to call you i'm going to call my family i will call my sponsor okay and figure it the fuck out and maybe you'll go to treatment i want to tell you i'm not going to relapse <laughs> i mean i don't give a fuck what you want to tell me i'm i'm like that's just such a foregone conclusion in my mind that that's going to happen that it is that you're not going to relapse yeah okay you know i sent myself a video after being an outpatient Mm -hmm. or excuse me impatient mm -hmm. and i've only seen it twice but i mean that was an intense three weeks mm -hmm. <laughs> my in that video i was like remember this this and this mm -hmm. i looked my looked at myself the whole time and i was like you're never doing that again right and i guess it would be pretty short-sighted of me to say that i never would go back to rehab but right. i would consider myself a failure if mm -hmm. i did that because i have so many resources and tools and things available to me but i do also recognize that as humans we're flawed and the easiest minute little thing could trigger that yes but at this point it's the last thing that i want to think about yeah too so i i guess are you asking it from the sense of like do you have a contingency plan in place because i mean i've got a million contingency plans you know for everybody but, no, but like for me to have that as a contingency plan, I guess. I mean, you, we could do that. It depends on how severe the relapse is. It depends on, you know, how much has been lost. It depends on a lot of stuff. Personally, I don't foresee that happening. Great. That's awesome. It's a case by case basis. It depends how severe it is. It depends on a lot of things. But <laughs> it's funny that you're kind of ambivalent about your ambivalence. Like I'm pretty clear that you have some ambivalence in you. Like I can see it. I think I can see it in a way that you can't. I don't mean to say you're you're not fully accepting the thing. I don't mean to say that. I'm just saying that in my experience, you know, if there was a spectrum of ambivalence, mm -hmm. you know, let's say 10 being hardcore, never going to drink again, zero being full blown, I'd say you're maybe a 6.5. I thought I would have gotten a higher score. No way. No way. 
talk to your sponsor. Notice, I mean, talk to him about his story. And like, you know, I would say that, you know, that guy is probably like an eight, 8.5. You don't meet nines very often and tens are even rarer. But I'm trying to tell you that it's very, very difficult, in my opinion, to get to a place of absolute clarity about this shit. Is it fair to accept the fact that there will never be clarity around this shit? If, as long as you don't drink, I don't care what you think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell a lot of my patients, you have one job, you don't drink. That's it. Anyway, so that's the reason I kind of called you in is I wanted to needle you a little bit around this issue and also touch on the subject of cross addiction, which is, you know, you went from opiates to alcohol. And do you have any lasting comments you want to make? No, just, you know, I think if anything that I've taken away from 2020 is don't isolate yourself. There are people out there, whether it's folks that you haven't spoken with in two weeks or mm -hmm. two years, if you are feeling alone, if you feel trapped, if you feel like you are not in the path that is the direction that you want to go in, there are so many resources and avenues of seeking help and getting help. Mm -hmm. You really can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. um, the first part is just like talking to someone yeah you know help is out there yeah life is so much better when there's clarity around it and there are pathways to that clarity for everyone yeah okay i think we're done do you feel complete yeah i feel good i knew this therapist would say do you feel complete i'm like uh, yeah i guess i'm complete no, i can be complete yeah it's a good stopping point all right all right cool thank you for listening should you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my podcast, please feel free to contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or go to my website at benjaminrusick.com. And remember, the next time you find that your plate is full, well, consider getting a bigger plate.